News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Going in the weekend with us. It is a Friday night. Usually we do Freestyle Friday. And, you know, we may entertain that. We may entertain your, your random detached phone calls throughout the evening. But uh, it's it's going to be a little bit more centered than it typically is on a Friday night because we have a guest in studio, self-identified progressive pastor Nathan Roberts is in with us. Nathan from Minneapolis. Hey, how's it going? And uh, typically calling into the program in studio tonight. And he has a piece over the city pages entitled "Can Millennial Pastor Nick Hall Bridge the Generational Divide Among Evangelical Christians?" It's a fascinating piece and uh, we'll go ahead and get that that linked and tweeted out to you and if you have a hard copy of city pages um, we'll let you know what page it's on and and uh, where you can pick that up and we're going to discuss that here potentially for the entire two hours tonight and so it should be a fascinating conversation between two christians who are coming at politics and cultural issues from very different philosophical standpoints and so it's gonna get uh, it's gonna get hot and heavy in here. <laughs> it's gonna get a little little potentially contentious, but hopefully we'll discover something about each other's perspective and have a productive conversation moving forward. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five is the number to join us if you feel so inclined throughout the evening. We appreciate you checking out past shows by doing a search for closing an argument in your iHeartRadio app. And also finding us on Facebook, searching for closing argument with Walter Hudson and liking our page and setting yourself to be notified when we go live and when we post things. It uh, helps us, and hopefully you find that it helps you as well. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. So, without further ado, rather than simply uh, read or, or dictate the, the contents of your uh, piece here at City Pages, Nathan, how about you, first of all, give us a little little intro, deeper intro than you typically get as a caller into who you are, and then kind of describe your piece for us. Yeah, thanks. I am a pastor. I serve at a Lutheran church uh, in Columbia Heights, just outside the uh, Minneapolis Northeast neighborhood, um, where I work with an after-school program, um, and I also help facilitate a lot of meals that we serve, so uh, I do that part of my week. The other part of my week, I am a blogger and a writer. Um, I post pieces occasionally with City Pages. Uh, I also work with a school that I helped found in Kenya um, called Daylight School, um, where we have over 400 kids that are going to school and uh, learning to be little rock stars in East Africa, uh, world changers. So we're really excited about them. Um, so that's kind of how I spend my week. Um, and for this particular article, uh, I was asked to write about Nick Hall. Um, he's a rising star in evangelicalism and he's a really unique person because he's a millennial. Um, and he's also really looking to be a bridge builder in this really fractured time in evangelicalism. And so city pages reached out to me. I went to his big uh, free event in U.S. Bank Stadium called Pulse, where he had top 40 um, acts 
uh, Christian rapper Lecrae was there, a bunch of Vikings players, and it was a huge event, um, really diverse, well-attended. And I did a report, and then I sat down with him two months later, and we did a long interview and and did some research into what he's doing across the country. And so when you talk about building bridges in a, in a divisive, contentious time, what specifically are you referencing? Because as, as I read through the piece, it seemed as though that Nick Hall, the, the pastor who you're referencing and who you profiled here in the City Pages, was kind of trying to thread the needle between uh, more traditional conservatives, trying to not offend them, while at the same time pushing views that obviously are antithetical to what you traditionally expect in a evangelical conservative Christian church. And so what what would you describe as the the objective or the methodology for building these bridges? What does building a bridge look like in this context? Yeah, so I think evangelicalism is in a really fractured time right now, um, especially generationally. Uh, there's the boomer generation that is uh, mostly in charge of churches. Um, they have much more conservative views generally. Um, they're they tend to be more conservative than even other boomers in their generation. Um, you know, it's still common in um, boomer-led evangelical churches to not allow women to preach or serve on the elder board. Um, and the boomers also grew up in a time um, in the... They, they were coming of age in their church leadership in the 80s and 90s uh, when the moral majority was really front and center. Um, and there was this idea that um, they were going to raise their families to be soldiers in the culture war. Mm-hmm. That um, after Roe v. Wade, um, after uh, Reagan, and um, led under a lot of the TV pastors, that they were going to change the culture through the mechanisms of the Republican Party and power. And so uh, they trained their young people uh, to... Uh, question um, a lot of the things that they had heard in school, um, question evolution, question um, the gay lifestyle. uh, And there was also a big push towards abstinence, um, really questioning the feminist agenda. Um, And as all these things are being popularized in popular culture, um, evangelicalism is finding a lot of identity and reacting to those things. And these churches are becoming sort of increasingly a cultural haven, self-perceived cultural haven for conservatism, um, a particular brand of um, evangelical conservatism. And so uh, now that generation is aging, um, and millennials are coming up into adulthood. And millennials um, who grew up in evangelicalism are turning out a lot more millennial than evangelical. Um, And they are finding that... They are not interested in party politics. Um, they're not very interested in the Republican Party. Um, they're very tend to be very disinterested in um, Donald Trump and the projects that he finds interesting. And one of the main things I think is that um, through their experience in education um, and often moving to the city and suburbs, they engaged people from different worldviews and built relationships that didn't fit within the narrative that they had been given about what other people were like. Mm 
Um, I know Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky were kind of heralded as this is what liberalism does to people. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. And uh, when they grew up and they met Democrats, um, they found out that they're really sweet first grade teacher was a Democrat. They found out um, that their neighbor down the street was a Democrat. They found out that, um, you know, this other guy was an independent, that the the person who ran the shop was a Catholic. All these people that were supposed to be in sort of immoral categories um, were just people. And so they really began to question the basic underpinnings of some of these other otherings Mm -hmm. that had happened. Um, And began to also hear stories about how evangelicals were being perceived writ large in our culture. Mm-hmm. And they did not like the narratives that they were hearing. Right. Um, so, so is in re in response to that, because there's a lot of stuff I'm hearing here that that's catching my interest and, in, and threads that we can explore throughout the rest of the program tonight. But of particular note to me off the bat is, is what you just landed on. There is this, this notion of, there being a desire to, because when you talk about building bridges, it sounds like the building of the bridges or the effort to build the bridges is a reaction to this discovery that you're describing, where you know millennials are going out into the culture as having been raised as evangelicals, realizing two parallel discoveries. One, that the rest of the world isn't as horrible and heinous as they were led to believe, and two, that there's this perception that, in fact, the culture that they grew up in and came from is actually villainous to a, to some degree or another. And so there's this desire to reconcile that, to, to say, no, we're really good people and we can stand for good things. And, and perhaps we need to apologize for some things that we've done in the past and try to try to to uh, rebrand our origin in such a way as to to align it with the, the broader world that we find ourselves entering am, am i paraphrasing correctly yeah i like to use the metaphor of uh millennials growing up and finding out that they were the product of a really messy divorce mm-hmm. um between um evangelicalism and a lot of the rest of the country um and now they're growing up and being like hey uh can we fix this can we try to work things out between one another um, and Nick Hall is a prime example of that. Um, he has been filling up stadiums across the country. Um, the hundreds of thousands of people have been coming out to hear him. Um, and there are a number of other people who are also finding this middle way where they want to be a part of what's happening in the larger culture. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to be a part of clean water and Flint. They want to be a part of... Um, the things that are the hashtag activism that right, they see happening. Right, yeah. Right. Um, that's, and, and as I went through your piece at the, at the city pages, and again, you guys can find it. You can Google it right now. It's uh, the, the uh, headline is can millennial pastor Nick Hall bridge the generational divide among evangelical Christians. As I went through it, it was, it was very much a, a laundry list of all the causes. And it, it's, it felt like Hall's, quest was to try to attach the the Christian mission or perhaps define the Christian mission as working to advance racial equity and social justice and you know all the all these different things that are of concern to to folks who tend to identify on the left 
um, but certainly generationally, who, who tend to be younger, tend to be millennial. And so my question for you before we go to break, and you don't have to give a comprehensive answer right now, but I want to ask the question, give you an opportunity to respond off the cuff, and then when we come back, we can explore it in more depth. To what end? Like, what's the point of, like, why Why do we want to build this bridge? What ultimately are we trying to affect by building this bridge? Is the purpose a a religious purpose to actually advance the gospel as you understand it, or is or is the purpose a cultural purpose to try to to reconcile th- this dissonance felt when you enter the broader culture, having come from an evangelical background? I'm not quite sure. I understand what the ultimate point is of of the hashtag activism. So I think that um, evangelical millennials have the same issue that a lot of millennials have is. Um, and the question you might be pointing at is, to what degree is it performative to be perceived as being on the right side of history? And to what degree is it genuine reaching out and hoping to connect with another human? And I think there's always going to be both in that. Well, and okay, so I I accept, and I'm, and I'm not interested in even arguing whether or not it's about connecting with another human. I totally believe that it is. My question is, to what end do you want to connect with that other human? Because it, it strikes me that Christianity has always had a biblical Christianity has always had a very specific motive in trying to connect with other human beings. And that's ultimately to to develop, to point to God and to develop this relationship with God and to make people disciples of Christ. That's the the church's mission. And I, I'm confused as to how the the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the woke causes yeah. serves that function. So for me, I think it's that loving your neighbor, um, we've come to realize also means loving your neighbor's neighborhood. And if you love your neighbor, you also have to care about their neighborhood and the water that comes out of their tap, uh, the air that they breathe, uh, the police that walk their streets, um, the schools that they go to. Um, no one lives in isolation of where, of their social location. And so to love your neighbor is uh, just an act of charity, but to love your neighbor's neighborhood is an act of justice. Interesting. We will flesh that out in detail when we return and take your call. 651-989-5855. already got a couple lined up. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Nathan Roberts in studio with us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. All right. I want to give the callers a chance to engage here with our in-studio guest, Nathan Roberts. You know him as Nathan from Minneapolis. He's called in a number of times to the program, a progressive pastor uh, who has a piece recently published over at City Pages that profiles Pastor Nick Hall, who is an up-and-comer in the evangelical community, uh, who is, from my perspective, and and I don't know that Nathan would necessarily... uh, object to this characterization but he seems to be working to push the evangelical culture in a, in a leftward direction and a progressive direction however you want to characterize it and so that's fascinating to me it's interesting to me it's obviously interesting to nathan and so we're in here talking about it tonight before we get to your calls i want to touch back upon where we left off here with this concept of loving your neighbor meaning you love his neighborhood and that if if you're really love him and his neighborhood you're going to be interested in trying to affect justice closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm 651-989-5855 is the number to join us if you feel so inclined so 
this idea of affecting justice and specifically how it, it it manifests in the form of what may be characterized as the social justice warrior movement and the, the hashtag activism, as you put it, what's the analog for that in the biblical narrative? Like what were the, the first century Christian versions of hashtag activism? So I think it goes back way farther than that. Um, so when the Hebrew people, um, left Egypt um, from slavery. Uh, a lot of people uh, know that story from the Judeo-Christian tradition, but if you don't, um, Moses uh, stood up to Pharaoh and left, um, and they had these a million people camping in the woods, uh, in the desert, um, the bush, and uh, so they needed rules for how they were going to govern their community. Um, and so they created these rules, um, and... Uh, some of those rules were not the best rule. Uh, my friends who uh, live in nomadic communities in uh, Africa say that you stone people in the desert because you, you haven't invented jails yet. <laughs> that, 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 okay, that's one way to put it. That's an interesting perspective. So, um, But uh, there are these interesting laws in the Old Testament called the Jubilee Laws, which said that um, because they had come out of uh, slavery, which was an economic slavery, um, they had no land in Egypt, um, they had also no ability to uh, create wealth or um, work for themselves, uh, they created these laws called the Jubilee Laws, which meant that um, every six years you would work, and on the seventh year you'd take a year off. And on that seventh year, all debt was canceled. Mm -hmm. Every debt that you had to anyone else was canceled because they didn't want anyone to be engaged in economic slavery. Right. Um, where and then every fifty years, um, all the land uh, would go back to its original owners because they didn't want generational. Uh, they didn't want people people to be generationally uh, at risk because of the bad decisions of their parents. So land was apportioned to different families, and then after fifty years, um, they blew a ram's horn and everybody gave the land back, um, except for no one ever gave the land back. And so every 50 years, they never gave the land back. And so um, the prophets always were calling for the year of Jubilee. Um, and um, they were always asking uh, to give the land back, to cancel the debts, because they saw uh, as uh, Israel became uh, metropolitan, um, as it became a capital city, as it became a small country, um, there was an increasing divide between uh, rich and poor, that their kings were becoming corrupt, um, that fewer and fewer people were interested in uh, worshiping God and loving their neighbor as themselves. So goes on and on, and then Jesus comes along, and when he begins his ministry, he says, I'm here to declare the year of Jubilee. And so that year of Jubilee is sort of a hashtag activism throughout, you see throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, or they're continually calling for this uh, forgiving of the debts, for a clearing of the air. Um, the Jubilee was also a time where um, old scores were settled and people were asked to forgive longstanding uh, family conflicts. So if you, you had two families that had just been at it for generations, like you had to put that aside. That had to be done after 50 years. So um, th this is really fascinating to me from from the perspective of a Christian. I mean, we're both believers. You're a pastor. I'm a, I'm a believer myself. I attend church, um, the, the elder in a congregation. 
out in my neck of the woods. The notion that the purpose of the year of Jubilee and the purpose of Jesus coming and saying that he was here to fulfill the year of Jubilee, that the point was actually just the physical, pushing the physical reset button on personal property here in in, in the earthly world in a temporal sense. Isn't there some symbolism there in terms of like the spiritual significance of what it is that, that, that Jesus came to accomplish, that it's more than just let's affect some sort of equity here in the wilderness, that it's actually pointing towards the cancellation of debt enabled by the, the grace and the atonement and the, the uh, substitution Nary sacrifice that was provided by Christ. Aren't there some higher theological points that were being pointed to by both the Jubilee and, and that that Christ came to fulfill, or is is it is it about the property and about the divide between rich and poor? So when Jesus said those words, no one had any of the concepts that you're talking about mm-hmm. in the community that he was talking to. They only had the actual concept of the Jubilee. So he was saying it in a synagogue. He was reading from the scroll of Isaiah to a group of Jewish people. Um, And so those concepts um, were theological reflections on the death um, of Christ later. But in that moment, they would have heard uh, economically. And he goes on to say, uh, free the prisoners. Um, Now, I think that there's a push in many Christian circles to want to spiritualize it. Uh-huh. Because it's much easier to do theological work than it is to do economic. And uh, actually freeing someone from prison is a much more complicated act than sort of spiritually freeing someone from a spiritual prison. Um, and so oftentimes Christians are quick to turn the conversation that direction uh-huh. because they feel more comfortable uh, talking in spiritual terms because it requires less of us as a culture. Right. I see the, my, my difficulty in this and we're, we're a little bit overdue for a break and I do want to get to some of these callers when we get on the other side. And, and so I'll plant this seed and we can explore it a little bit later in the program. But a couple of questions that come to mind in response to that is if, if in fact it's some sort of post Christ theological spiritualizing that was done after the fact, how do you account for the fact that, you know, how many people did Jesus Christ free from prison? How many social revolutions did he lead to actually upthrow or overthrow the the status quo? You know, where was his march on Rome? Like, where was his his effort to focus on earthly authorities and earthly institutions? It seems very clear to me that he wasn't concerned about any of that whatsoever. That he was he was in fact trying to get across the the fact that the the perceived importance of all of those earthly concerns ought to be subdued in order to place a focus on the spiritualizing as you put it uh in terms of what it is that that all all of those stories and models and uh imagery pointed to in terms of his accomplishment his work what he came here to do in terms of addressing sin you know when you talk about freeing the prisoner the, the question that comes to my, my mind is free him from what? And in, in Christian theological terms, my understanding has always been free the prisoner from sin specifically, meaning that which involves and why, why do you need to free him from sin? Because judgment is a real thing. Judgment is something that is imminent and uh, eternal 
and extraordinarily consequential and requires a response. Um, and so it's not this kind this, this notion of just pushing a reset button for its own sake is fascinating to me and provocative to me. And I want to explore it later on in the program and we'll, uh, we'll take some calls when we return as well. We'll, we'll uh, give you a, uh, a break to think it over, seeing as how we're right there at the bottom of the hour. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can join us at 651-989-5855. We're going to go to your calls right now. In studio, we have Nathan Roberts, a progressive pastor who wrote a piece at City Pages profiling another pastor by the name of Nick Hall, uh, who is engaged in what appears to be a successful effort to, quote-unquote, build bridges. Uh, within and um, beyond evangelical Christianity, and it's, it's it's centered very much around addressing issues of social justice, addressing issues of social needs, and it's it's rooted in this concept that loving your neighbor requires you to pay a mind to his neighborhood and try to affect justice in the culture. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Fascinating conversation so far. And let's uh, talk to some of the callers. Let's start with Zach in Lino Lakes. I know you're going to have some interesting points. Yes, I think I have an idea why evangelicals are turning left. I can share from my experience. You see, I grew up in an evangelical household. And uh, the thing is, I go to to Sunday services all the time. I hear them talking about personal salvation. Meanwhile, there are real issues of ethics of right and wrong going on all around us one thing that really got me and it's just a, it's just one of many different things was the story of a of a man who murdered his entire family and uh he had earlier been sentenced to parenting classes even though he had a violent history that really woke me up many years ago now there are these there there's countless millennials and others under a certain age who have gone to church every Sunday with these real issues going on around them mm-hmm. and their churches don't really address it at all they right give answers here's the thing the Bible does have answers for these issues, and their theology you know their theology really does apply to things like this. You know, you're talking earlier about human relationships. Well, I've mentioned before, the concept of the Trinity has huge implications with human relationships. The one and the many. The left tends to emphasize the collective. Um, The right tends to emphasize the individual, but they're both important. But nobody's teaching the kids how the Bible and the doctrines it teaches really applies to real-life issues. But here's the thing. Things like um, prisons. The Bible says something about that, too. That, But the Bible says that there shouldn't be any prisons. I would refer you to Acts to the Root podcast by Bojidar Marinov. Mm-hmm. And again, anybody 
I highly recommend you listen to that. Also, the parents, they may claim to believe in small government and whatnot, but in practice, they act just like the tyrants they claim to disagree with. You see, they do not have a vision for building culture from the ground up. They see the solution in raw political power. Yeah. And uh, this, they, they see that hypocrisy. And then we wonder why they're turning left. Because the churches are not preaching a faith that really reaches all areas of life. But they do see people who do preach a faith, a faith that does reach all of life. And because the churches are not offering answers, well, guess who they turn to? Right, right. I appreciate your point very much, Zach. And, and it, it, all of that was resonating in my mind as I was listening to your opening statement, Nathan, uh, earlier this hour where you were describing um, the, this entire perspective, what Nick Hall is trying to accomplish. And, you know, in particular, I, you were nodding your head as Zach was talking about how conservative evangelical Christians have tried to utilize the, the institutions of power to affect from the top down a vision of how the world ought to be. That's absolutely true. And, and doing that absent uh, addressing the, the, kind of, the kind of the grassroots um, origin of it all, of why is it that we should care about these things? Why is it that we should have uh, a, a certain perspective? And actually trying to persuade people to... Uh, conform themselves with the with god's will and god's plan as opposed to from the top down we're going to order you to do it yeah i think we really saw that in um the nomination of brett kavanaugh as a mechanism by which uh rather than coming up with a grassroots campaign to reach out to those who um are making difficult decisions about pregnancy there's a belief that if we can use the mechanism of government to make it illegal, um, which is a power move, um, a cultural power move, uh, that that will um, take care of the problem. The government will take care of the problem. Um, and like the caller said, uh, that's also true a lot on the left. Um, the left uses the government um, to enact its will. Um, and uh, enact their agenda. And I think I'm not here to say that that's right or wrong, um, but that's a project that has been a consistent project in evangelicalism. And I think millennials are beginning to question that project. Another thing that Zach said, or uh, at least uh, spoke around that uh, I felt resonated with what you had said earlier is that there seems to be, and neither he said this or you, but I, I, inferred it from both of you and that's that there's this desire for purpose within all of us but particularly within evangelicals and within millennials where there's this desire to be of use this desire to be on the side of right on the side of history on the side of a moral crusade that is is justified and effective and that the the church the evangelical church has failed to meet that need, has failed to provide a satisfying outlet for that desire uh, and a focus for that desire. And so the, these efforts by Nick Hall um, and, and efforts that, that you support as well appear to be 
trying to fill that void by by driving that desire or fulfilling that desire through these social justice concerns, the hashtag activism and what have you. Now, I would call into question whether or not that's the right way to go about trying to fulfill that need. But what say you regarding the that kind of visceral connection to this need to be of use to society? Absolutely. I think that uh, millennials are very active and engaged in issues in their time. Um, I think millennials want to be useful. I think millennials want to do things that have purpose. I want to do things that have purpose. Um, I'm a, I know I'm like a vintage millennial from 1984, but I think that's something that when they're offered an opportunity to make a difference, uh, that's something that millennials grab at. And I think that they're looking for something that's beyond blame and shame. Uh, somebody for being poor that's beyond uh, yelling at somebody who's made a difficult choice about a pregnancy. I think they're looking for something more nuanced and complex than um, fix your own water flint. I think they're looking to get engaged. I think they're also, um, there's something that I think is really important um, that happened um, in the millennial generation. Um, and I think it's, it's changed um, our generation generally, which is that, um, if you notice now, every uh, kids movie, all the bad guys have backstories. Um, you know, you never when we never Skeletor didn't have a backstory. Skeletor didn't have a backstory. <laughs> we never asked if uh, Ursula was bullied. Yeah, right. You know, we never asked how she got in that cave. Like if, yeah. but now if if Little Mermaid was being told, there would yeah. be a, a scene that was showing right. how yep. Ursula would didn't right. win the beauty contest. Yep, and exactly. That's sure. why she's so angry and so. <clears throat> that narrative move um, is representative of a lot of ways that millennials think generally. And so I think millennials aren't satisfied with some of the answers they've been given about why people are poor, mm -hmm. um, about why people um, are struggling. Um, and so uh, Nick Hall and a lot of people who are doing work with social justice, with mentoring programs, um, feeding uh, clean water, um, they're saying, Hey, uh, these stories are complicated. Uh, let's build a relationship with the people who are experiencing this human suffering and let's talk about how we can walk with people. And I think that's really inspiring and really resonating with millennials. All right. We'll take your calls when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Nathan Roberts in studio with us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. In studio with us, we have Nathan Roberts, progressive pastor, who's been setting the table, laying out the, the concepts uh, that are being pursued by uh, a pastor, Nick Hall, and, uh, and others to push the cultural and political center of evangelical Christianity uh, in a leftward direction. Let's take your calls. Let's start with Barry in St. Paul. Thanks for holding as long as you have. So I know I'm not going to change your opinions about stuff, but I always, I wonder, we listen to what you're talking about. How are you Lutheran? You know, Christians, okay, Catholics are a little bit different brand of Christ, Christians, so on and so forth, but Lutherans, Lutherans are all about individual relationships with God. That's why they're Lutherans, not Catholics. How can you be a Lutheran pastor and be progressive? 
doesn't make any sense. I think that one's directed at you. He's definitely not talking to me. <laughs> Appreciate the call, Barry. Um, you know, I've asked myself that question before. Um, I think it's healthy to be critical about your tradition and where you find yourself in it. Um, a couple things that attract me to Lutheranism. I didn't grow up Lutheran. I grew up evangelical. And um, a couple things that really attracted to me is that uh, Lutheranism comes from Martin Luther, who had um, a real hand in progressing the conversation of Christianity forward when he believed that all people should be able to read the Bible in their own language. Um, he translated the Bible into German. He believed that you didn't need a um, religious superstructure to intercede on your behalf, um, that people could uh, worship God and pray in their own way, and that the Catholic Church didn't need to be in the middle of that. Um, which was progress. Um, See, it's it's interesting that you frame it as progress because I would argue, and I think a, a fair number of Reformed Christians would argue that it was actually a call back to original intent. You know, that it was actually a regression back to what was established in the first century. That there there wasn't this superstructure, as you call it, I think accurately. Uh, of of religious authority centered on human figures, that it was very much about the the relationships and the di the direct knowledge, the the reading of scripture, the sharing of scripture, uh, and, and it was much more authentic. And that's what Luther was actually turning us back towards, as opposed to advancing us in some new revolutionary direction. I think that that is true um that there was but there was a very significant difference um between martin luther and say the time of jesus uh the jewish people um in the first second and third century were living in an occupied territory as second-class citizens as jewish people um it was illegal to be a christian and so um you could actually be caught and killed and burned in the stake uh, fed to the lions so um they were not a state-sanctioned religion the way Judaism was a state-sanctioned religion. You were a second-class citizen, but you were allowed to be Jewish. Christians were not allowed to exist because Christians refused to uh, worship the emperor, um, and they didn't have official state um, sanction to not worship the emperor in the way that Judaism did. So um, years later, Martin Luther now has a quote-unquote Christian government. And so he has to find how to navigate this Christian government, um, which is a very different situation than um, first century Christians had been in. So he um, developed this theology of the right and left hand of God. So he said that um, the government is the fist of God and uh, the church is the open palm of God. And that, uh, the, that the Ten Commandments, um, the upholding of the Ten Commandments will be um, administered by um, the government and that the government should enact these things, but um, prisons, all these things. And so he was interacting with how to create a Christian society outside of the Pope. And that was a progressive move. That was a new, mm -hmm. a new thing that had never happened before. Sure. Well, fascinating. We've had a lot of uh, fun unpacking this for the first hour. Uh, we will continue into your second hour. This is definitely the most uh, studious and philosophical Friday night we've had here on the program. Hopefully you're enjoying it. 
uh, we'll we'll get into a, a little bit more detail chewing on these various pieces that we've laid out on the table so far uh, as we continue on closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Nathan Roberts in studio with us. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. for a Friday night, if I do say so myself. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. We've got Nathan Roberts, progressive pastor in studio with us, having a expansive, deep, broad conversation about the political trajectory of evangelical Christianity in the United States. And we kind of been orbiting around a piece that Nathan wrote in the City Pages, a profile of a pastor by the name of Nick Hall, who is apparently an up-and-comer who is attracting a lot of attention and building bridges, as Nathan says, uh, in an effort to reconcile the, the perceived intolerance of evangelicalism with a increasingly leftward leaning generation of millennials i think that's a decent paraphrase of what we've been talking about tonight did you take any objection to that nathan in terms of how that was characterized yeah i think uh i mean that's a a lot i agree with a lot of that i think the leftward trajectory i don't know that nick hall would consider himself on a leftward trajectory i think he would say he's making a beeline for the center um and that i would argue that evangelicalism has gone as far to the conservative political Republican agenda that it can in the eighties and nineties. And um, perhaps Nick Hall is an, a self-correcting um, to more of a centrist position that evangelicalism has historically held. Um, All right. There you go. There, there are your two, your two perceptions of what we've been talking about so far this evening. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Tracy in Plymouth. Thanks for holding through the break. Oh, thank you, Walter. I love your show. I love your show. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I may need to backtrack a little bit here because I think I came in late, but That's fine. I want to understand, I think, so I can I didn't read the article in City Pages, but if I understand correctly, if the sort of the idea of this pastor of being progressive and and sort of moving to the left and and bringing people to the left, and maybe I should preface by saying I'm not sure I understand what you mean by Lutheran. I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran, so I think that we need to make those. Um, we need to pr- make those things clear because there's a difference when are you an ELCA, are you a Wells? But at the end of the day, um, when we, I, I, I feel that when we talk about progressive, that's, that's um, very self-centered. It's all about what I can do for, for everybody. And we all need to do this. And, Going back to the conversation that you had a couple minutes ago about Luther, 
he also stated that this wasn't solely about him. Maybe you can call it a progressive move, but he said his ultimate focus was on what Christ did, and he basically, and we know from Scripture that, like you alluded to earlier too, Walter, in saying that this, that Christ came to, you know, um, reconcile all of us. There was one thing that he came to do, and he basically laid it out pretty clearly and said, I don't know who all y'all think you are, but you're all a bunch of wackos. You're all a bunch of nut jobs, every single freaking one of you. And I'm here to clean that up for you. So stop worrying about what you think you can do better than me. And I feel like that's where this conversation of progressivism is going. Like, I'm so great that I'm going to, I'm going to come up with this great idea to, um, um, solve all of these socialist problems and, and, and forgive me that I'm not so well spoken as you, Walter, but, this whole conversation is so self-centered. It's all about bringing people to a place of selfishness in that everybody else has the answer. When we already know that the answer is already there, it's been done, it's been talked about, it's over, but yet all... We're trying to reinvent the, the theological wheel. Yeah, what? I... Yes, I think that's... Thank you. I think that's great. And so I feel like... That's missing from this conversation that you are having. Like, this isn't about anything that this new pastor can do or any other pastor can do. And we, that's also been cleared up in scripture that there's going to be a bunch of people running to the front of the line saying, Oh, I got the answer. I got right. the answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate what you're referencing. not being addressed. Yeah. All right, Tracy, I appreciate it. You definitely have uh, transitioned us well into going from laying out uh, what what is being brought to the table by Nick Hall and our guest Nathan Roberts tonight to to the critique, which I think uh, we've we've uh, under, we've spent enough time trying to understand it to be able to productively critique it. So let's go ahead and engage with that. So to kind of try to reframe the what uh, Tracy was getting after there. Going back to one of the concepts that emerged as we were discussing this last hour, Nathan, we we centered on this notion of there being a desire for purpose within the millennial generation and within the evangelical community that has gone unfulfilled or has perhaps been misdirected um, in the past by church leaders, that there's this desire to be of service, to be of of some sort of moral um, character to be able to actually affect good in the world and to, to, to make a difference in people's lives and to make a difference in the neighborhood and to be, have, have some sort of meaningful lasting connection and impact upon society. And so you and I both agree that that need exists, that that desire exists to be of service, to be of value, to accomplish something meaningful, to be a hero in a certain sense, to, to be a martyr in a certain sense, to be, to be a, a virtuous, to have moral virtue. That desire is there, and it has been unmet. Where we diverge is it seems very much like what what you and Nick Hall are pointing towards as the means to fulfill that desire is let's go out and do what we can to 
reduce inequality, wealth inequality. Let's go out there and do what we can to address racial disparities in criminal justice. Let's do what we can to go out there and and make sure that there's less discrimination for women in the workplace or against gays or against transgenders or whatever the case may be. And by doing that, by affecting these these social uh, movements and affecting social justice, we're going to fulfill this innate desire that millennials have and that evangelicals have to be of service to the world. Whereas from my perspective, and I imagine Tracy's as well, and, and many other uh, Reformed Christians or evangelical Christians, we would argue that the reason why that need exists and feel and there, there feels to be such this, this desperate desire, this desperate unmet desire within so many young evangelicals is because the church has really dropped the ball in terms of informing young Christians of what our mission is in the world, number one, and then number two, actually modeling it by leading the way and engaging the culture. The, the fastest growing religion on the planet right now is Islam. And the reason why, in my view, is because Islam, you know, for for whatever else you want to say about it, Islam is challenging. Islam has a demand of its follower. Uh, Islam is provocative. It's countercultural. Um, it's pre it's presenting a challenge. It has a mission, and it's unequivocal in its pursuit of its ends. Christianity used to be like that. It's not nowadays. It's it's been very in the, the average evangelical. Uh, you know, I'll go ahead and use the word boring Christian church in Midwestern America. There's very little fire. There's very little passion. There's very little conviction, engagement, uh, desire to to really make a a splash, so to speak, in the culture and in these these conversations about right and wrong and the direction that we ought to be uh, moving. And out of that malaise, it feels like to me that what you what you're a part of and what Nick Hall is a part of has risen into kind of fill the gap where it's like, okay, let's let's be on fire again. But let's do it not for this kind of theological, spiritualized purpose of preaching against sin and pushing people towards salvation and trying to save souls, but towards the more kind of terrestrial focused notion of let's fix inequalities, let's fix injustices, let's advance uh, a more peaceful society in the here and now uh, on planet Earth. Your response to all that. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, um, I just wanted to give a shout out to the uh, caller. Um, I'm an ELCA pastor, which is the more progressive side of uh, the church I serve has Republicans and Democrats and a lot of people whose eyes just kind of roll whenever you talk about politics. Right. Um, so there's a wide variety of people. Um I grew up Missouri Senate, which was a very conservative. I went to a, a, a Missouri Senate Lutheran grade school. Um, and so the kind of grade school where you use the Bible in history class. Sure. Um, so uh, I want to talk too about um, this need for purpose. And I also want to draw a line too between Nick Hall and myself. Okay. Like I am much more progressive than Nick Hall is. Fair enough. Um, Nick That's Hall good is, to know. Nick Hall is an evangelical. You're pandering to the wrong audience. 
I will never pander to any audience. <laughs> I think that much is clear. <laughs> I pattern I pattern pander to an audience of one. <laughs> um and so I think that Nick Hall is trying to do some work within evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. It's an inside interior conversation. I think it's prompted by well, I know it's prompted by the 2016 election and rampant support of evangelicalism for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, he, through a unity rally um, prior to um, the 2016 election, he sits on the NEA board, which is the National Associ- Association of Evangelicals. Um, and he they represent 45,000 congregations across the country. And he was seeing the old guard of evangelicalism lining up behind Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um I think a lot of older evangelicals felt like Trump was their last best hope. Trump and Pence together were their last best hope for this uh, theocracy that they were building out of the 80s and 90s to overturn Roe v. Wade um, and uh, combat the feminist agenda, what they perceived as the the threatening gay lifestyle, um, which I do not feel is threatening at all. Um, But... Uh, and so uh, as this momentum is building, Nick Hall uh, decides to throw this unity rally and invite – he invites Trump's people and he invites uh, Clinton's people to come to the National Mall with a really diverse array of people to come together to pray for our leaders and ask for unity and to kind of elevate the discussion um, out of the mud um, that we had kind of entrenched ourselves in to be about values and loving your neighbors yourself and even loving your enemy – uh, whether they're your political opponent or otherwise. Um, and Trump agrees to show up. Um, and Clinton, a lifelong Methodist, refuses the invitation. Um, I don't know why she did. I, I, I think she refused a lot of invitations and that no one can really figure out why. Um, and so um, he uninvites Donald Trump to this event. And they still have it um, because he didn't want to have one side without the other. And I think that is what separates him from most of evangelicalism is that he was willing to uninvite um, the Republican party if uh, the democratic party wasn't involved invited. And um, that has not been an impulse of the evangelical church um, for the last 40 years. Um, Growing up, uh, I didn't even know you could be a Democrat and a Christian. I'd never even heard of that before. Um, I, you know, and so I think, um, that is Nick Hall's project. And there are a lot of millennials that are interested in that project that are interested in finding this middle ground that are sick of demonizing the other side. They want to elevate the conversation and they want to take what they can from, um, some of the social movements. Um, I think Dr. King, um, is a big inspiration for that group. But Billy Graham's also a big inspiration for that group, um, that they want to center on Jesus. That, um, But like when I went to his rally, um, Lecrae was wearing a Stay Woke shirt, right? And- right, which, I mean, when you, when, you, when you talk about playing to the center, the phrase Stay Woke doesn't seem to be very centrist to me. I mean, the, the whole woke concept seems to be rooted pretty firmly in, in the, the progressive thought bubble. So I think Nick Hall is not interested in the political center. He's interested in the relational center. So he's in really interested in being in a in relationship and having a friendship with 
Christian artist Lecrae, who spoke out heavily after Ferguson um, about what it meant to be a black man in America and was essentially abandoned by his white evangelical listeners. Um, he said he went from having 3,000 people at his concerts to having 300 mm. um, for speaking out about what he felt was um, speaking to his unique place in American culture as a black man um, and showing solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Nick Hall reached out to him and said, you want to show up? And Lecrae showed up, from what I can see, in a Stay Woke shirt, and Nick Hall said, all right. Like, he accepted him there from in the relational center. So it's it sounds like you were saying that what Nick Hall's trying to do is merely maintain a dialogue with people from a diverse political association, not necessarily to try to advance the the evangelical identity in one particular ideological direction or the other. I think he has issues that he cares about. Mm -hmm. And some of those issues are progressive issues that progressives also care about. Mm -hmm. And other, those issues that people who have two legs, two arms and a head care about, like everyone should have clean water Mm -hmm. Um, in people in the developing world should have clean water. Mm -hmm. Wells in Africa um, that mentors are a good thing, right? These are not controversial um, what makes Nick Hall controversial is who he surrounds himself with, not uh-huh. the things that come out of his mouth. All right. When we come back, I want to explore that a, a little bit more. We'll continue to take your calls as well. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Like Twin Cities News Newstalk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. In studio, we have... Nathan Roberts with us, progressive pastor. We've been talking about the state of evangelicalism and the the ways in which Christians engage politically in this particular moment. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's go to Steve in Bloomington. Welcome to the program. Hey, this is Pete in Bloomington. But, oh, okay. Uh, well, there we go. Thanks. Yeah. Um, no, you know, I, I keep hearing people say, well, this generation, that generation... The reality is everybody's different within each generation. There's types of people who are developed by the type of society, the type of people they hear, possibly even their pastors in the church. So let's not try to separate generations and say, well, you're this and that. There's plenty of conservative, young, so-called millennials. There's plenty of liberal, uh, so-called Generation Xers or the original me generation, uh, you know, the baby boomers. There's plenty of liberals. And there's also nothing new under the sun. This this type of liberalism in the church, the extra-biblical teaching, doesn't go with God's word. There's two types of Christians. Really, there's one type of Christian. There's a Christian who believes God's word and tries to do his best to follow it and does not deny God's word and does not deny the power thereof. There's other people who try to conform to whatever the times, whatever they may be, and this is nothing new. This has been going on for thousands of years, and, and try to convince more people to follow them. Okay, the Bible clearly warns about these type of pastors or so-called pastors. I don't really call them pastors. I call them wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's and, and to tell somebody that homosexuality as a Christian is okay, you know, it's one thing to say God, God wants you to believe in him, but God also says that, you know, you have to follow him. Just like dealing with somebody who's got drug addiction or alcohol, it's, it's, a, it's not right with God. People can pray for him and change. But to just, we accept this. This is okay with God. 
is to take God's word and pretty much throw it in the toilet. It, it's not true. And, and you have this progressive, really socialist movement that really doesn't truly believe God telling people, do this, do that. Well, that's the old generation way of thinking. That's the old, you know, so they're putting people in boxes. That's the old way, the old evangelicals. No, that's God's way. It's not old. It's not new. It's God's way. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way long past when these people are gone. And and from the, when I keep hearing people try to say this, I just go, really? You know, read your Bible, study your Bible. You know that that teaching isn't right. Now, right. when we come to certain people, they want something where it's basically what's been described as the Burger King religion. Have it your way. <laughs> some of this, I'll take some of that. Right. Salad bar, pick and choose. I don't want this and that. That's not how God works. Now, I'm no perfect Christian. I am far from a perfect Christian. But I think one of the worst things I could ever do is to deny God's Word. All right. I appreciate your point, Steve. Very well articulated and thoroughly articulated. We will reframe it here and get a response from Nathan. And I'll refer back to your piece, Nathan, in uh, City Pages, where you profile Pastor Nick Hall. Um, there's a portion where you're describing uh, his uh, remarks at this Pulse event that uh, took place at U.S. Bank Stadium. Um, there were thousands of people in attendance. He started off by saying this. I want to start by apologizing to anyone who has ever felt judged by anyone calling themselves a Christian. I want you to know that God loves you and your life matters. And that, of course, is a reference that can be taken as a reference potentially to Black Lives Matter. This idea, it, it seems as though, to, to Pete's point, it seems as though this is a effort to try to minimize the concept of judgment or to circumvent the idea of judgment or to, to try to get people to feel comfortable and unjudged. How do you reconcile that as a pastor? How do you reconcile that with the prominence of judgment within Scripture and the, the understanding of the gospel as a satisfaction of God's wrath, a satisfaction of God's judgment uh, in the, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So um, I think that some people have um, an understanding of God, like God is a lot like Thor in Infinity Wars. Um, this just angry person that is just... Like I gotta hit somebody today. Um, walking into the bar, um, that kind of energy. Um, and that's not for me at all. Um and to say that I don't take scripture seriously, I think um I would like to a little defend myself in saying that I spent all my years of graduate work and college getting um studying the Bible. Like I literally majored in the Bible. Um, and then I went to seminary. So I've taken it pretty seriously. Um, now, have I interpreted it the same way that everyone else has? Um, probably not. Um, I think that um, for progressive Christians that I know and that I um, hang out with, uh, we find a lot of value at living at the intersection of um, knowledge points. So um, we understand that there is knowledge and value 
um, in the Bible, uh, but we also know that um, there is knowledge and value in science. There is knowledge and value in psychological research. There's knowledge and value um, in therapeutic uh, discoveries. And so um, I was raised in a church that told me that the Bible was um, a single source of information, and it was so far ahead of other sources of information that um, if the Bible said that the world was created in seven days, then then it was created in seven literal days. So let me let me offer you my belief and understanding of what it is that you're describing, just and just to kind of get you. Well, we'll have to go to a break, and then we, you can come back, and we can kind of unpack it a little bit. But to my mind, it's not so much that the Bible is the single source of information. So much. It's not about the the amount of sources. It's about the quality of the source. And and the the specific role that it serves. The Bible is a special revelation from God. It's God's word. It's by no means the sole revelation. Creation itself is what we would refer to as, and I'm sure you've heard this term before in, in seminary and your theological studies. General revelation. Our lives are a revelation from God. The, our existence is a revelation from God. And so science and research and all the, th- the things that you point to as other mechanisms for understanding our existence are also mechanisms by which we can understand God. It's just that the Bible is, is the, 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 the lens through which that understanding is meant to be focused. I think that one of the most misunderstood concepts of the Bible is genre that there is genre um, in the Bible and that the genre of Genesis 1, the seven days of creation, is poetry. It's a poem. And if you read it, it it has a repeating cadence. And God said it was good. And God said it was good. Um, It has a poetry to it in the Hebrew. Um, It has a rhythm to it. And so um, when you look at each section of the Bible, um, there is a genre that's operative. Um, later in the Bible, you see um, epic narratives. The Bible is, um, the the writings of the gospel are much like in the genre of the day, which was epic hero narratives. It was a novel about a person. Now, this is doesn't say it's true or not true or anything. It's just a genre that was common for Odysseus and all these things. Uh, the letters of Paul are letters that were written. And so each genre needs to be understood on its own merits. And I think asking um, 2,000-year-old poets their conception of how the world was created um, is a lot of pressure to put on a 4,000-year-old poet to know the ins and outs of how the world was created. All right, we'll pick up right where we left off there when we return. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Nathan Roberts in studio with us. 651-989-5855. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here nine to eleven weeknights. We've got Nathan Roberts, progressive pastor, in studio with us tonight. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. The number to join us. Brad Holman taking your calls and producing the show. 
going to have to be a, a shorter segment this time around. We keep uh, going with these long segments. We're going to have to play catch up here. So let's go to Dick in Pine City. Get your thoughts. Yeah, a um, couple thoughts. Um, first of all, I think that we're missing, well, we're missing the point that, that we are, as humans, can't possibly understand and really conceptualize all of, uh, in, in, an, in an integrated way, what, what God is thinking and what God is, has planned for us, number one. Number two is we've got to subdivide everything, and as a result, I think we end up confusing, in a lot of cases, charity and justice. And, and, and from my religious background, those two are, op, are, are basically the opposites of, or, or the op, the, both sides of, a, of the same coin, if you will. I mean, we talk about, there's a lot of concern about, and I heard it earlier from the pastor, about things like being too judgmental and mm-hmm. that God is going to be the, the, the Thor or the, the, the bad guy. Right. Um, that, that's a very prominent thing today is we don't want to judge anybody. Mm-hmm. We don't want anybody to feel bad. Right. We want everybody to get participation trophies. The, the flip side of that is that and, and throughout history or throughout the Scripture, we find examples of, 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 of judgment discussion of how, you know, I mean, you can go through the Gospels, you can go through the, the, the Old Testament, and you get it over and over. But you also get the charity side of it, mm-hmm. the, 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 the workers that go, go out and, at, in the, into the vineyard at various times of the day right. but are all paid the same wages. Mm-hmm. My point is that, we think of the two as, as in conflict, but but in reality, from God's point of view, he can't be just if he isn't charitable, and he can't be charitable if he isn't just. Right. If you don't if you don't if you don't treat people justly, um, you, you then then you're then then you aren't being charitable to 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 people either. But if you're but if you start to force people to be charitable and do things that should be done through based on charity, mm-hmm. then then you don't you're not being just to the people to the people that you're obligating to to carry to to assist the other person, if you will. Put another way, my point is, my point is that justice is a if if I'm if you've got a if you've got a claim on me for under justice, then you have a right to something. If you have a claim on me under charity, it is my obligation, but it is a claim that is that is that has to be freely given, not enforced. And and then the final my final point is you cannot be a Christian and be a progressive because progressivism comes from the Hegelian philosophy. And you just simply cannot they are totally in conflict the, the the whole point of progressivism if you get into the history of it is that it it is anti-religious it does not believe in god it believes that man can solve all the problems himself through technology and and so you cannot be a progressive and be a christian I appreciate your thoughts, Dick. You've actually summarized uh, things pretty well. And when we come back, I appreciate the call. When we come back, because, again, it has to be a short segment this time around, it's going to be our final segment when we return. And I want to kind of make my – we're going to have our closing arguments. 
right here on the show, call a closing argument. I'm going to make my case for my vision of how all these pieces fit together, and then we'll get the response and final word from our guest, Nathan Roberts. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. All right, we, we've been beating around the bush for just about two hours here on the program. We've been uh, talking with progressive pastor Nathan Roberts in studio uh, about the state of evangelicalism, the trajectory of the politics of evangelical Christianity, and just been kind of having a broad, meandering conversation uh, about Christianity and theology and this moment in politics. And I want to try to wrap it up here in our final segment of the evening. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. So for me, and, and I've kind of been beating around this bush the whole night, and now we're going to get down to it. Now we're going to acknowledge it. For me, the point of Christianity is the gospel. And when I talk about the, when, you know, the word the gospel is something that is tossed around quite a bit without being specified or defined. And to, to my knowledge and my belief and my theology is such that when you recognize what the gospel is or you describe what the gospel is, then all of these different pieces that we've been talking about throughout the past two hours falls into place. When you talk about you know the importance of providing people with clean water, the importance of loving your neighbor, uh, the role of charity and justice, as was just described by Dick in the last segment, the point of all of that and the, the role of judgment itself, the context in which Christ's ministry means anything at all, the, whole, the reason why it's called the good news is because it's offered in a context of horrible news. The horrible news is you are under the judgment of God. You are under the wrath of God. Nathan, you referred to it. You used the analogy, the metaphor of Thor earlier, the the, the anger of the, of the mighty divine um, directed at us. That is a real thing. God is angry. God does have a wrath that needs to be satisfied because of who he is, because of his character and his nature, because we've sinned against him and sinning against the divine is inexcusable and it has to be answered for. And we are going to have to answer for it. That's the bad news. And it's only in that context that the good news is good at all. The good news being that Jesus has come in order to take that wrath on our behalf, in order to provide us with the opportunity to... to it, receive grace, receive charity from God. And because we've received it as believers, that enables us to be charitable to others. This this notion of being able to forgive our trespassers as we have been forgiven, it's because we've been forgiven first. It's because of what God did first. So when we go out and we try to love our neighbors and we're charitable, we're not doing that for its own sake. We're not doing that just to have, have clean water and you know give people a, a warm blanket and a place to sleep. We're doing that as a manifestation or as a testimony, a witness to what Christ has done in, in terms of the ultimate charity of paying the price that we deserve to pay for the sins we've committed against God. So the, that's kind of my closing argument here in terms of, to, to my mind, that's where the focus is. Everything that the church is doing is supposed to be pointing at that, whereas it seems as though the the direction that uh, 
things are being taken by the the likes of Nick Hall, and I know you don't want to necessarily conflate yourself with him, Nathan, but but uh, the direction you're pointing things as well is much more focused on the means rather than that gospel-centered end. So your closing argument, sir. Yeah, for me, um, the work of Christians is to fill out uh, the work of the kingdom of God. Um, in the Lord's Prayer, um, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that we are trying to make the kingdom of God, the values of loving your neighbor as yourself, um, of freeing the prisoners, of uh, welcoming the stranger, of bringing people together, the work on earth. And that that work is communal work. It's give us our daily bread, not give me my daily bread, give us our daily bread that in order, when we pray that prayer um, in church, we are saying that Jesus calls us to pray. We're saying that I'm going to be a part of that work together as a people. Um, and I think that to do that, um, to, to give us our daily bread, we also have to give us our access to food. We have to give us our access to um, a store in our neighborhood that provides bread. Um, a store that provides bread that's healthy, not just trash white bread. You know, um, we need uh, a sto- uh, a jo- jobs that can provide living wages that people can afford bread. Um, I think that Christianity has done well with charity, um, but we have to do so much charity work because we have to make up for the systemic sins that we see in our society that don't allow people to provide for themselves. And I want to work on a bigger level towards a world where we don't have to have feed hundreds of people in soup kitchens because people can put soup on the tables of their own families um, because they're getting paid living wages. Um, and yes, we're going to still provide soup and we're going to sit down with people, those who fall through the cracks and fall in hard times. But when we have generations, when we have millions of people who are falling through the cracks, that means that there's a bigger uh, concern, a bigger question about how are we going to feed everyone? Um, and that work, uh, we can argue back and forth about what's the best mechanism to do that work, whether that's government, whether that's um, foundations, whether it's charity, whether um, it's worker movements, what the mechanism of doing that. But we need, as, as a church, to begin to think bigger about the question of how do we give our neighbor our daily bread? How do you do that without force? <laughs> That's Brad's contribution. How how do Which, you ensure that everyone is fed, everyone has everything they need without force? Um, well, I'll give you um, an example of, I think it's a question about what a basic human right is. Um, my wife is from, uh, grew up in uh, Europe, and when she first came to this country and she learned about health insurance, she was appalled that we charged people for health insurance. It's free there. So she just assumed that it was a thing that people got when they got sick. Um, And when I tell my American friends about Africa, that we have this school that we run for kids who can't afford school fees, they say they charge people fees to go to school in Africa. And I think we need to expand the notion of uh, what should be expected for each person in our world. 
That's your final word from Nathan Roberts. Appreciate you very much coming in and sharing your Friday evening with us and sharing your views with us. It's been an engaging and provocative conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Closing Arguments, the name of the program. My name is Walter Hudson, produced by Brad Omland. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Glenn Beck is next. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.